Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Jacob Boston. Today at the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Victor Max Valentine's interview with the director of the Gender and Sexuality Resource Center at UAlbany, where they talk about the resources the center has to offer. Then, May Kelly talks with Carol Quantock about modifications homemakers can make to their windows to protect our birds from flying into them. Later on, Mark Dunley brings us an interview with mirrorless Kevin Clark, where they talk about how Kevin became the artist he is today. After that, Willie Terry brings us brings us a roundtable discussion with freedom fighter and civil rights icon Mukasa Dada and others. Finally, Taina Asili speaks with Morley on this week's episode of The Rhythm of Rebellion. But first, here are the headlines. With an end to the pandemic-related pause in Medicaid eligibility checks, the Times Union reports that 800,000 New Yorkers, about a third of the recipients, have lost their benefits. About half are thought to still be eligible but have failed to complete re-enrollment paperwork. The Choice City Council has improved has approved the city's budget on a 4-3 to three vote along party lines. A Republican proposal to add two new firefighters was defeated, with the Democrats noting that there were already several vacancies. Newly elected Choi Mayor Carmela Mantello cast a vote in her present role as city council president against the city raising golf fees, saying it would be unfair since the fees were raised last year. However, she then voted to raise the city's water rates, even though they were also raised last year. The Times Union reports that the State Liquor Authority is taking almost a year to approve many licenses to sell liquors, which has put significant financial strain on many new restaurants and liquor stores. The length of delay by the state has increased by 50% in 2023. A local judge has twice overturned approvals by the planning board in the village of Philmont of a new subdivision of 16 homes on 22 acres overlooking Summit Lake. Opponents argue the project will negatively impact on area wildlife and contribute to the gentrification of the village. The developers argue they are responding to the local housing crisis and their buildings would be passive, meaning meaning super energy efficient. Common Cause New York is suing the state board uh, over its approval of a controversial digital voting machine. The bipartisan board approved the machine on the conditions that the company fix potential security issues with the source code of the software and ensure that the audits are, com- are completed by hand. The Times Union reports that Democratic and Republican election Republican election commissions, commissioners of Albany County are urging Governor Hochul to veto legislation that would require certain local elections to be moved to even-numbered years, adding those, adding those races to the current cycle for state and federal elections, while voting rights groups and statewide Democrats are pushing, are pushing the bill to increase voter turnout, local officials are concerned that attention on local races will be drowned out by the races for president, congress, or governor, 
while also potentially introducing more national culture more national culture war issues into local contests. The nonprofit Kara House at 917 State Street in Schenectady has opened, providing housing and support to unhoused single adults. The project by Bethesda Housing has 16 units for single adults released from incarceration. It also includes 10 units tailored for chronically unhoused single adults. Sandy Day O'Connor died on Friday morning at the age of 93. She is best known as the first woman to serve as a U.S. Supreme Court justice. That is it for the headlines. The Gender and Sexuality Resource Center, or GSRC, provides a modicum of resources to the LGBTQ plus community in this and, and wider community. Uh, in this interview, Victor Max Valentine sits down with the director of GSRC, Courtney Daylard, and they talk about the resources the center has to offer, why it was founded, and the steps they're taking to make student life easier. This is Victor Max Valentine. We are speaking with Courtney Diallard, and they are the coordinator of the Gender and Sexuality Resource, Resource Center. Uh, hello, Courtney. How are you? Now, your page tells us that this is a safe space for all students to engage in dialogue around the intersection of gender and sexuality. Can you tell us a bit more about that, please? Absolutely. The um... You know, the GSRC was founded, you know, by students like yourself, students who wanted to talk about how our identities affect our lives, all of our lives, right? And so the Gender and Sexuality Resource Center was built on that premise that there were students here at the University of Albany, um, especially we center those in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, there are students here at the University of Albany who felt, uh, you know, like there weren't a lot of resources or it was hard to find or have find places where it was safe to talk about identity and life experience and so um you know a group of students banded together to create what what has now become the gender and sexuality resource center and through that space we provide you know course credit internships um student employment uh programs and engagement scholarships um emergency funds uh safer sex materials food access stations free menstrual products and a number of other things that just you know assist students not just on our campus but hopefully in their lives long term in thinking about how do we create a just and sustainable uh social community of the students you have spoken with or dealt with what do you think how do you think they feel about the climate acceptance and diversity on the campus at uh, the university at, of, at albany great question um you know the one of the things i tell new students coming to the university especially transfers when i get the chance is that everything on this campus exists eight there you know we have eight thousand students i think we actually have like 12 or thirteen thousand students but eight thousand students live on campus and then you've got transfers and students that live in the community you so essentially with graduate students you have 15,000 students who come to the University of Albany from all over the nation all over the world and everything is here the good stuff the tough stuff everything is here right just like everything that's out in the world is also there and there are things that we have to navigate over the course of our lives what I think is unique about you Albany is that we're holding all of that right we're creating space for all of that to be held 
and be had a conversation with versus closing doors and shutting down different dialogues when people don't agree, especially around identity and life experience. So I think it's powerful what we do here. And I always think that students coming into UAlbany are coming into an age um, and into their own advocacy, regardless of age, around um, all to, what it is to know and really understand the world and their place in it, which means that it's it's meant to be t like tackled, right? It's meant to be hard in that way. Uh, and I think it's harder for students at campuses where they're not holding it well, when there aren't these spaces for leadership uh, and life experiences and dialogue. And when those schools are not setting the stage for that, for that personal growth for everybody, right? But here at UAlbany, I know that we're doing that work. I think our students would be challenged wherever they were in the way that they would still feel like, you know, we do we have enough? No. Do we have a lot? Yeah, we do. Uh, they would still feel like they want more, um, which is fabulous. And uh, on a campus that doesn't have many resources at all, uh, I think they would be starkly shocked to find how much UAlbany actually has. So, you know, to answer that question in a roundabout way, I think that um, there are a lot of students who will never come through our doors who think that UAlbany is absolutely the best place ever for LGBT students because they don't have to navigate any of the actual issues, you know, that students are facing. Yeah. I think our students, from a diverse perspective, um, you know, they, they're living their own lives and, and struggles in that in that space and so they love and have a hard time here and then there are students who are absolutely struggling no matter where they would be but because you albany is what it is it is better than if they were somewhere else do you know how many campuses actually have a gender and sexuality like resource i i shudder to think please tell me what you know about yeah so there are roughly 600 um professionals uh, doing this work, there's probably more than that, 600 centers, I think, that we know of across the nation who do LGBT center-specific work out of 3,000 campuses, right, which, you know, is a, is, you know, less than third, so maybe it's a quarter, maybe it's less than that, 20%, but the, um, in SUNY system, there are 64 campuses, and UAlbany was the second resource center in the entire 64 campuses. Wow. Um, Today, there are four resource centers in all the 64 campuses. So we are not even hitting the benchmark of the nationwide precedence of, of you know, 25%. Um, and I think that that, you know, put in perspective, and I love that students won't ever have to know that here, right? For them coming here for a lot of things, this is the way the world is, that there are these spaces and these conversations. Yeah. But in reality, we're still a very um, new uh, world to live in here. Can you tell me a little bit about what uh, excited you about getting involved with, with this? With GSRC? Yes. Yeah. So I was part of the student groups that, created the center in 2009. Um, I was a returning student um, having a not completed community college. Uh, I found myself at UAlbany just wanting to exist, you know, as a queer person in the world, kind of tired 
of having to explain all the things all the time and create spaces but exactly. i wanted to kind of just <laughs> enjoy myself and i found out really quickly that 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 was not for me not to say that it wasn't possible but to just enjoy myself and not advocate would to be ignoring the need and the pain of my friends at the institution and so i very quickly came to the realization that um you know that i that i could see that we could be doing something different and started talking to students about that and they agreed and we started working on on trying to bring that attention to the administration and so you know i was like i was having conversations with my friends who were part of the lgbt plus community you know in, in the middle of the night after after a night out or like a social time and and they were telling me they weren't going to graduate that they were leaving that they had flunked out that they you know lost family support and they needed to work you know that they needed to do advocacy work in the community and and that was taking up time from their from their classes and they weren't doing so well and i thought geez you know somebody else has to know that you're not going to be here anymore it can't just be us here on the steps of empire you know and then next semester you're just gone um and so yeah that's what that was that's kind of what my impetus for for change at a university that was talking about um you know mental health and resources and i was part of middle earth the peer education program here um and so yeah that's what that's what led me to to be an advocate um in that area and not just a not just a party animal <laughs> that's excellent i really appreciate that you took the time to meet with me no it's an honor to speak with you and to to share a little bit of my story and the story of the center and the space um you know i guess uh what i like to say about the center is that we um i hope we we, we, we kind of hope that nobody has to come through our doors because they're in pain yeah because there's been a problem you know um, I hope students come through our doors because they want to get involved, because they want to find their own voice, because they want to learn about others and connect with their community and envision what could be, right? And that we create a space where that is part of the dialogue and that they have the most power in writing that story. Mm -hmm. um, and yet we still know that tough things happen. And so, um, you know, I'm proudest that we leave, the center leaves a light on. When we, before we started the center, there was, you know, there was like seven students, LGBT student leaders. They were part of the club that had been around since 1970, which is a long time. And we had a student government leader. Um, we had a lot of LGBT leaders in LGBT specific positions. Um, you actually used to sign a non-disclosure agreement when you went to the club <laughs> oh. uh, that you wouldn't say who was there. And I think we've come leaps and bounds from that. But, you know, the the major difference that I've seen over the years is that we have we still have LGBT leaders in LGBT specific positions, but we have a ton of, of LGBT identified students in non LGBT specific positions. And I really think that that's the definition from moving from a survival space, which is where we were prior to the center and the work of the center, um, to a thriving space. And that's that thriving for, space, yeah. yeah, that thriving space includes hard dialogues, uh, still holding our, our, institutions accountable even when we have great things that we can always be greater
Oh, that's me. Our appreciation. Thank you to Victor Max Valentine for this segment looking at student resources um, and mental health and looking at what the um, Gender and Sexuality Resource Center at UAlbany has to offer. With an, in- with an inability to see glass, birds are prone to flying into windows, which may result in injury, some of which can be fatal. But don't go flying the coop just yet, as there are measures of which we can take to protect our birds. May Kelly interviews Carol Quantuck, Carol Quantuck, Quantuck for Hudson Mohawk Magazine about how homeowners can make modifications to limit the amount of window strikes by birds. So, yeah, I guess uh, I'll just start off by asking you to uh, briefly introduce yourself and um, to talk about the group that you're a part of, the Audubon Society. Well, my name is Carol Quantock. I am the vice president of the Audubon Society of the Capital Region. It's a huge, huge area, and we 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 have a board of directors, and we have lots of members and a good support uh, mechanism. We also do bird walks and have presentations on demand, basically. People will call or email and ask us to do presentations about bird identification, uh, which also includes uh, how to use binoculars, how to choose binoculars as well. And bird walks are the most fun. We've gone up to the grasslands in Washington County. We've gone out to Schoharie County. Uh, we're planning a Schoharie Eagle Trail for next spring as well. So we do a lot of things. Uh, we're not uh, huge like the Hudson Mohawk Bird Club, but we're there. And we're more than happy to answer questions and uh, listen to people and hold presentations on demand. The topic that I wanted to talk to you about today was bird collisions with windows and something that like homeowners could possibly do to help with this and just to kind of work on the overall issue because it does have such a big impact on birds. I had previously done an interview with the Albany Pine Bush and talked to them about light pollution in particular and that kind of impact that it has. So why does glass pose such a threat to birds? They don't get it. In other words, they have no concept of glass, just like uh, any any other mammal other than human beings does not have a concept of glass. So there are two things that happen here. The glass can either reflect what's on the outside, so it can reflect vegetation and trees, shrubs from the outside, or they can see right through it, which may think that they can fly right through it. They think it's a hole because they don't know. They don't have a clue. When glass was first invented, it was thick and fairly translucent because of that. They didn't have collisions because it didn't reflect and didn't uh, wasn't transparent, so they couldn't see through it. Sheet glass wasn't uh, in production until about 1902, but glass itself, clear glass, was, has been around since the early 17th century. So it's about the 16, early 1600s. So yeah, that's a long time. That's 400 and some odd years that uh, glass has been around and birds run into it. They don't understand it. They don't get it. And of course they don't. They're birds. You know, it's, it's just that they don't see it. So sometimes they bounce, but they don't necessarily survive. And a lot of times what happens is the bird will sustain 
sustain internal injuries. People will think, oh, it just dazed itself. It's lying there. I'll put it in a little box and keep it warm and set it free. And I've done that myself in hopes that it survives. But many times the bird will suffer internal injuries and it will die later. And that's a tragedy because you don't know. We have no way of knowing. Frankly, there's a lot of research done on bird collisions, and the numbers are just astounding. First of all, if you think of the the amount of glass panes out there in the world, it's just beyond comprehension. And the uh, estimates are anywhere from 100 million to 1 billion birds a year killed by window collisions. Some of that's caused by light pollution, and some of it is just by what we have in our homes. And that's where the homeowner can do something about it. There are several different uh, ranging in uh, levels of expense. There's bird tape. You can just put these little strips of tape down your window in a grid pattern. That's a little bit more expensive. Then there's the really low tech stuff like tempera paint. This would be on the outside of the window, not on the inside. So the tempera paint tends to break up the image. There are also another uh, great little thing. Uh, if you're familiar with the sides of buses and vans where the window is covered by this film and people can see out, there that is also available for windows. Although I would consider that more of a commercial product because uh, they say you can have anything printed on it. So, of course, if you're going to advertise your, you know, your company or whatever, and uh, also uh, make a string grid two inches by four inches, in other words, four across, two high, uh, not or very few birds can fly through that, uh, and they wouldn't if they can see it. What we have done, and I have a big, huge sliding glass door. It's an eight-foot slider, so we leave the screen on one side, but we uh, made a frame out of uh, one-by-twos and then stretched a netting across it, and they bounce right off it, which is wonderful. That way, I don't have that big, huge plate glass sitting there waiting for somebody to run into it. It works really well. I've actually watched it in progress. It's fertile fly and bounce right off it. And that's great. And it's very low tech and it didn't cost us very much either, which is great. I think that that's the key here. A lot of homeowners are restricted by expenses, obviously. And, you know, if you're paying a mortgage, you don't want to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars, but it's really important to keep the birds from flying into your windows. You know, they're endangered enough without us adding to the problem. I guess like a lot of these kind of changes that are made are some things that happen after the fact, realizing there's a problem. Is there anything that could be done like when you're like constructing a house or first considering glass options to like stop it before you're like realizing the problem? Well, yes, actually, there are companies out there that are developing glass, although that is more for the commercial buildings. There's etched glass as well. Many uh, people that are in the construction business are they're going to put in the cheapest things possible, you know, to sell. If you're custom building a home, yeah, that's that's a biggie. And there are a lot of construction companies, especially glass companies, that are finally getting with the program and you know, finally getting into more sustainable and more environmentally friendly options. And even though regular glass glass is the cheapest or the least expensive, responsible homeowners, uh, if you're building a house, you may as well ask for it, you know, have it it installed or put the grid on right after or the paint or uh, film or whatever it is you're going to do right when your house is new rather than uh, waiting 
Now, before you had mentioned when you see kind of a bird that's just hit a window and like you take take it in, put it in a box, what would you recommend doing if you come across a bird? Uh, What I do is I will immediately try to protect it. And that's really what you want to do because we're, well, I happen to live in a fairly rural area and uh, there are other animals out here. And it is pretty well documented that if a bird, if you leave a bird and it's still alive, it may not be for too much longer because there are predators out there, squirrels, other birds like blue jays. Blue jays are, they're bigger birds. They do attack other birds. It happens. It's nature. But um, chipmunks, red squirrels, foxes, um, any carnivore will come along and and, uh, take it up and becomes lunch. Um, So to try to prevent that, just put it in a place where it's protected away from that or if it's a larger bird and it just seems to sustain wing injury, call a wildlife rehabilitator. That's really, you know, if you think that it's going to last that long, and mostly they don't. Sometimes, though, sometimes they just fly away on their own and there's no way you're going to catch it. So I have done that. I've done it several times in the past, put it in a box, but not always. That's the little birds. So not always is that going to happen. That's uh, bigger birds like hawks and uh, they can uh, owls. They can sustain wing uh, broken wings. And in that case, you definitely want to call a wildlife rehabilitator. You you had spoken about changes made to the glass. Are there other changes that you could make in the area in order to prevent the this kind of strike? Well, there's also another really low tech. If you have regular window blinds, you don't want to close them all the way because that will create a reflective surface on the other side so that you won't help anything. But if you leave them open just a little bit, it creates a horizontal stripe across and they will not fly into that because they'll recognize it as something they can't fly through. That's the biggest problem is they think it's something that they can fly into because they're seeking habitat. They're not going to recognize that that reflection is something they just flew out of. They think that's habitat and they're going to try to fly into that. You know, because they are natural creatures, they're uh, they're seeking food just like anybody else. There's been a lot of research done as to how far up and how far out you should have your feeders Um, You don't want your feeders within 10 feet because if there's something that scares the bird, it will take off and it'll it'll achieve uh, top flight uh, speed pretty fast. And that's usually when it'll 10 to 12 feet, it'll probably fly into your home. A little bit out further than that is good. Put your feeders in places where the birds have a place to hide. Uh, within 10 feet of shrubs and trees and places where they can hide from predators. That's a that's really important to keep in mind. And that way they're not flying willy-nilly probably into your home trying to get away from a predator. Well, thank you for, um, for speaking to me today about this. And um, hopefully more people can be educated and this is something that could the numbers can lessen. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me here. And uh, thank you for speaking with me. And if anybody has any questions, just contact the Audubon Society of the Capital Region. We do have a Facebook page and a uh, website too. That was May Kaylee talking with Carol Quantock about how, he, about how homeowners can help protect our birds from flying into their windows. I'm sure I'm not alone when I say I enjoyed that piece with flying colors. And for those of you just tuning in, I'm Cena Vazilecki. <laughs> and I am Jacob Boston. 
You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Choi, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Choi, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany. And finally, streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you'd like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Kevin Clark has painted numerous murals throughout Troy and the Capital District, including the Bird and Water Wheel in South Troy and at Brown's Brewing Co. Troy Saving Brown's Brewing Co., Troy Savings Bank Musical, and the Headley Building. He recently, ta- he recently talked to Mark Dunley about the story of how he became a muralist. We're talking with Kevin Clark, uh, who has done a number of murals in the uh, Capital District. And I saw a recent um, newspaper article where he was putting, a, I guess, some touch-up to the uh, Burden Water Wheel uh, mural, which you see right as you enter um, you know, South Troy. So I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. Um, so, so Kevin, what what are some of the murals you you've done, particularly in, in in Troy, but you know, throughout the Capital District that people might be familiar with? Well, I've done a lot of my Capital District murals are based in Troy. So uh, the Water Wheel. Uh, I've also done the Music Hall mural, uh, which I'm going to touch up next. Uh, Brown's Brewery. The Troy Bot, River Street Market, inside and outside. That was probably my biggest one because I was like 80 feet high. And Aboff's outside. So there's been a few outdoor murals in Troy. Uh, most of my other ones in the Capital District have been inside. I do a lot of resident, and so those people don't really see. But my most visible ones are in Troy. And uh, I have a few in Long Island and New York as well. Yeah, so I read sorry. that you sort of got started. Um, you were helping uh, the people, I guess, a couple of decades ago, opens up the Browns Brewing Company. And they said, hey, can you help us you know, make an icon for the inside? And hey, when you do something yeah. on the outside, other people saw it. And <laughs> yeah. suddenly you're in this business. Yeah, I stumbled into this. I went to school for art. And after graduating as with a lot of artists, I really didn't have uh, an idea of what to do next. I didn't have any jobs lined up. And uh, I was friends with uh, Gary Brown and Jim Moran, and they were opening a brewery. And fresh out of college, I'm a fan of that whole beer concept. So I decided to go and help them. Uh, And what I didn't realize is the building was just a shell. It was burned out, and there was really nothing there to do. So on weekends, I would go and pull nails out of floorboards just so they could salvage some flooring. And they knew I went to school for art. And they were like, how about putting up a logo of an old brewery on the wall up there? And I've never done it before. So I gave it a shot and it looked good. And they wanted another logo. And that led me to do the entire inside of the brewery. Then I did the outside of the brewery. Then someone from a different brewery came and saw it. And I went and worked for them, and I've been doing it ever since. So it was never my intention to be a full-time muralist. Uh, it just kind of 
accidentally happened. And uh, I've been doing it for 30 years now, which is, uh, it's a tough way to make a living. Um, but it's it's fun. I enjoy it. And I think that's what counts. And at this, at my age, I don't have any other skill sets. So my best course of making money is to keep doing what I'm good at because I'm really not good at too much else. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's basic, the, the Clark Murrell story right there. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the Burden Water Wheel Murrell, because I often drive by, and that's the news article. You know, or, or, you know, does somebody say, hey, we want you to do a mural here, and you figure out what to do, or they say, here's what we would like to do. Can you make it happen? How, how does the mural process you know, tend to work, particularly on the outside ones. And we'll go a little bit later into the inside ones. But Yeah, the, the, the water wheel worked out well because I don't, I think Troy Community Gardens approached me because they saw that I did the exterior browns and I was kind of the only one at the time that did that kind of work. So they said, we want the water wheel and they had an image, a historical image. So it was easy because they knew what they wanted. A lot of times when a client doesn't know what they want, you spend a lot of time just kind of fishing and trying to figure out what they're going to like. This was very cut and dry. So um, that was good. And the hard part is usually just finding the subject matter and getting everyone on board. But we skipped all that. and We had good reference. And reference is everything because personally I need to look at something and then I could mimic it. I could copy it. Um, so uh, it held up well. Uh, it's over 20 years old, I believe. And the fact that it faces southwest, it gets a lot of weather and UV exposure. Um, but unfortunately, after all that time, it will fade. And it did get tagged with graffiti. So they approached me, no, I'm still around, and said, you want to either touch it up or redo the whole thing, just freshen it up. And they chose the uh, latter option, and I was able to repaint it. So it was even easier because everything is there where I didn't have to start from a blank canvas. I just had to clean it up and go over all the lines. So it's like taking a test with the answers in front of you. You just have to fill in all the the answers so uh, that, that was a, a good experience it was just a, a race with the weather just because by the time it really got down to going ahead to do it it was in october already so we had to weather is always a factor with exterior work uh now you mentioned you also do quite a few interior murals and i was actually thinking about that today in my own house you got a couple of big walls you know the parents with newborns call you up and say hey we want something exciting for our you know, our toddler or, you know, what, what is some of your yeah. indoor business? Well, I do a lot of marbling and, and go leaf and faux finishes. Faux finishes aren't all that uh, popular as it used to be, but uh, I've done a lot of nurseries. Uh, what I don't like is when someone calls up and it's like, we want a mural. We don't know what we want, but how much will it be? So there's, there's just so many variables to, go through but a lot of times thanks to google when i started out i was hand drawing everything and i'll give them 10 drawings knowing that nine of them would be rejected so there's a lot of wasted time trying to figure out what people may like 
But now with Google, I could just send them images over the phone and say, what direction do you want to go? And it makes my life a lot easier. But yeah, I do a lot like uh, stadiums, like sports scenes, um, uh, just characters from books. And I've done daycares with things like that with Winnie the Pooh. So Disney characters I could do, but, you know, kind of, you just have to be careful with things like that because you don't want to, you can't do that in a public setting because then you could get copyright issues. But if someone wants a little Disney, then you could do it in their nursery or something. You Dog. did the Headley <laughs> building, I understand, with, with six stories and that, just reading an article, says it pays homage to Troy and his innovators. So what were some of the characters or images that you put into the, that one? Well, things will, I, I like my murals to have some sort of historical significance or be informative in some way. So what I liked about the Headley building, uh, though the characters, these are people that are really um, helped Troy along. Uh, it was, their names are going to escape me. Um, but the one guy worked for NASA and helped with the Apollo mission. Uh, the other Garnet, I think Garnet Jackson or I Samuel Garnet. Anyways, he was the first uh, African-American who graduated from RPI and designed public parks, including Prospect Park in Troy. And I think he had something to do with Central Park. Uh, the Whoever was the uh, president, Shirley Jackson, she was uh, the president of RPI. And Uncle Sam, of course, and a couple other people I, might, I can't really recall right now. But it is nice to do these murals and find out things myself that I didn't know and kind of spread this kind of knowledge that you're getting something out of this image. And the whole building, it says arrow on the side, and it used to be a collar factory. So it's kind of a way to bring the historical content. We're out of time, unfortunately. If people want to okay. see, do you have a photo, Facebook page? I do Instagram uh, under Clark Murals. We've been talking with Kevin Clark and uh, muralist. Um, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. All right, Mark Dunley spoke with Ken Clark. Those murals can be seen downtown in Troy. Uh, most of us pass by them every day. <clears throat> Freedom fighter and civil rights icon Mukasa Dada, a.k.a. Willie Ricks, who coined the slogan Black Power, is the special guest in roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry's round table, the struggle continues. Let's continue listening with Carlos Duffar, Dufflar and Angel Martinez joining in. And I can also speak to that question. Um, I was with King, and it was right after we did the Selma March. We were, I think it was 50 miles and whatever. And then when the Black Power March came, uh, the Meredith March walked 250 miles. And that uh, we were battling, and at the same time, all these cities were on fire. The United States was on fire. Every city, every state, every day that were burning and fighting and people dying in the streets. I mean, 30, 40 people shot down in Harlem or New York or 
uh, New Jersey and different parts of New Jersey and cities everywhere, big cities, small cities. So, and at the same time, the war in Vietnam was going on and we were condemning the United States for its war. We condemned Zionism. Uh, we had began and we had joined our movement uh, with uh, South Africa. Uh, even Dr. King was talking about going to South Africa at one point. But uh, we had joined our movement with South Africa, uh, the PAC, the ANC, as we knew it today, Mandela knows that we knew him then, uh, Mugabe in Zimbabwe, who was shooting down airplanes, guerrilla warfare, just like you see in, in it today, uh, Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau. Uh, we began to take leadership and information from China and Link Up World. Otherwise, Dr. King, by then, he had become a, a, a voice worldwide that people respect him all over the world. And Dr. King had been hit with black power and black power began, Malcolm began to be the spokesman for the movement, even in his death. And when Dr. King, when that Malcolm became the spokesman, Malcolm began to explain Africa to us, say you can't understand what's going on in Mississippi or Alabama unless you know what's going on in the Congo. And he pointed that out to us. He pointed out Lumumba. He began to join our movement with liberation movements all over Africa, Malcolm X, liberation movements from all over Africa. And when he joined those movements, liberation movements all over Africa, uh, we began to be influenced. In 1965, I think, uh, we, sent, uh, been we sent a delegation with Fannie Lou Hamer and all of them to Guinea. Seiko Toure, who was a social revolutionary. So now our movement began. Martin is worldwide. He's respected. And then he decided that they would walk from Alabama to Washington on the Poor People's Campaign. And when he began walking that, he had made earlier, during that time, he made a statement, and we had millions of people in the street demonstrating against the war in Vietnam. And Dr. King, Martin was pushed to come against that war. And when he made his speech April 4, 1967, uh, why I opposed the war in Vietnam, and his speech was written by a guy named Vincent Harding, and he made his speech why I opposed the war in Vietnam. He condemned America, he condemned imperialism, and he called the United States out worldwide. And when he called them out uh, worldwide, um, he became a threat, a greater threat to the United States. Because now he's coming up to be a great spokesman for African people worldwide, like Malcolm could be, or uh, Marcus Garvey was. And when he became a spokesman and powerful speaker, the FBI and the CIA made a decision to kill Martin King before he got to Washington, and they, he made a speech April 4, 1967. April 4, 1968, they killed him on that day. But when Martin spoke out against the war in Vietnam, he now speaking out against imperialism and calling the United States out for what it's doing around the world. So at that point, we I was satisfied with just making sure all the cities and protests and all the fires and 
people out in the street throwing bricks and balls and whatever. I was satisfied with that. And Martin then was walking from Mississippi to Alabama, and I knew all of them, but I was in SNCC, and we wasn't going for that. We were talking about black power and doing what we were doing, and that Martin then went there, and when they went there, I think Martin had got killed right before they got there, and they uh, treated them like dogs up there. The United States government treated them like dogs on the White House lawns and whatever. And they lived in misery up there until they ran them from up there. Mm -hmm. And now, uh, speaking of, I don't know what Baba is saying or talking about, but I don't believe him in voting. I think all of them is, <laughs> and that we made all of them. We put them up to run. We spoke for them. We got them. And we know that somebody in political power ain't got no power and that we need land. We want true revolution. We, I don't believe in, in Biden. He's a bum. And they're the ones that were throwing dynamite at us in the 60s. And not all of them for imperialism, all of them for colonialism, all of them Zionists. And all of them is for white colonialism or white power. And so damn all them politicians, our fight is for Africa. And I believe in the liberation of Africa, the total liberation and unification of Africa and all African socialist government. And this is what we're fighting for. And so I don't know it quite. I hear Baba and whatever, and they be talking about the different speeches and, 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 and King made and all that. That's good. But I don't think it's going nowhere until, I mean, I, they can do that. I don't think it's going nowhere, but we're going to have to fight for the liberation of Africa. To me, the only true liberation we're going to have is when we take Africa. Mm -hmm. Well, Angel or Carlos, you have something you want to say or a question? Brother said everything that was in my heart, but I just didn't want to say it. That it ain't going to be voting. The machine will not do anything. The only thing they'll do is just sugarcomb oppression. Sugarcomb it and have people believing to be a bootlegger and believe in everything that they tell them. That we have a dream. What dream? A midnight that we're going through now? People are suffering more than even in the 60s. So let's get, let's get this clear. Whoever he calls himself, I can't mention his name. I'll just say WB. But you forgot to mention also, I don't know if you know that, the brother, Terry, that he's now the, he's the, now the director at Yale University of diversity or something like that. So, I, you know, what does that mean? What does that mean? I mean, if you're going to speak for the people and you're going to speak for the suffering of people, you got to speak about the war. you got to speak about the genocide that they committed against the Palestinians instead of blaming them who are fighting, it's the same thing that Malcolm said. They make the victim look like he's the perpetrator and the perpetrator look like he's the victim. So That's people right. gotta wake up. Right. That's all I have to say. Okay. I can't say anything more. All right. Thank you, Mr. Brother. Hey, I, I just have a... <laughs> <laughs> oh, ain't you gonna say something? Uh, yeah, definitely. Go um, what you gotta say, young snake, young snake man? <laughs> yes. He introduced you to my son. <laughs> I'm introducing my son, okay? Thank you, Father. Thank you. Call me here. Thank Father, yeah. Thank you, Father. Thank you so much. Um, I just really want to add that uh, one thing I'll, I'll always be thankful for Sister Ella Baker, for Mother Ella Baker, for what she did, that without her, there would have been no Puerto Rico Solidarity Committee either. 
And that's another piece of the Pan-African puzzle. We have to liberate the rest of these U.S. colonies of Puerto Rico, Virgin Islands, Guajan, and uh, and Mariana, so make sure they're free. And all the American Indian nations have total sovereignty, too. If it wasn't for for Puerto Ricans and blacks and Appalachian whites and, uh, and of course, the Mexicans and American Indians, there would have been no uh, Poor People's Campaign. And, and we have to honor that, the original Poor People's Campaign. So I really appreciate everything you're saying because it was revolutionary. It was socialist. It was internationalist. Hey, man, we've been fighting for Puerto Rico long we've been fighting for anybody. I remember, yeah, we fought Puerto Rico, Leonard Patel, somebody. You remember Leonard? Ah, uh, yes, yes. got in jail? Yes. It's about yeah. them. We've been fighting for Puerto Rico. Independence for Puerto Rico. I've been saying that so long, man. I've been saying it and saying it, too. That was uh, The Struggle Continues by Willie Terry, and that was part six. And you can hear earlier segments from that conversation on our website, mediasanctuary.org. On this week's episode of The Rhythm of Rebellion, Taina Asili speaks with Morley, an artist deeply developed, an artist deeply devolved to human rights and environmental just devoted to human rights and environmental justice. In this conversation, Morley shares what she learned about the tran- what she learned about the transformative power of sound and harmony for a more just world. Welcome to another episode of The Rhythm of Rebellion. I'm your host, Diana Asili, and today we have the privilege of conversing with an extraordinary artist and activist, Morley, a multifaceted artist who weaves the threads of jazz, soul, and folk traditions into a singular tapestry of vocal and acoustic splendor. Her life's journey has been marked by a deep devotion to human rights and environmental justice. Morley's latest venture includes the release of her first children's family album, Story of the Sky, in collaboration with her spouse and musical partner, Chris Bruce, created to ignite the imagination and joy of its listeners. Hello, Morley. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I love what you're doing. It's so giving and life-giving. Thank you. Thank you you so much. (laughs) It's such a gift to have you on here. How has your artistic journey and your commitment to human rights and environmental justice, how have they influenced the development of your musical style? Mm, I love that. I have to come back to to dance because I started as a dancer and I was a choreographer. I had a knee injury when I was, I guess, 19, 20 at Alvin Ailey. I was dancing at Alvin Ailey. I was on their full scholarship program and I was really, you know, really, really deep in it. And then I had this injury and I had to go into the beginning level of dance class and just watch class and just do the bar, which is for people who don't know about dance or ballet, you just hold on to the actual ballet bar and do the exercises that way until I got stronger. But during that time, I would watch class and I started visualizing choreography in my head. And um, I've always written my feelings down in order to survive whatever I was going through when I was younger, when I was in high school. And when I was a teenager, I was on my own. And I realized that when I was writing like that, I was doing art therapy for myself. I was actually writing poetry. And then later on, when I had that injury a couple years later, some of those poems or those words came back and I started putting movement to them. Mm. And so they were like survival poems into survival movement. And then I was blessed to be able to choreograph at Ailey 
one of their student recitals and uh, my first piece, and Max Roach attended that performance because his niece was dancing. Then he came back to another performance and asked me to choreograph his 30th year anniversary of the protest album called We Insist, which was on the recording, you know, it had Ossie Davis, had Abby Lincoln. When he did the live performance, it had a lot of the same performers that were on the album, except Abby Lincoln didn't sing, Cassandra Wilson sang that part. And there was a 30-piece choir and 19 dancers, and, and I choreographed that performance at Aaron Davis Hall with my dear friend Pilar Lynch. So that experience brought me into hearing more clearly the cry for social justice in so many words, for human rights, for dignity. It was a non-negotiable spiritual environment I had walked into, you know, to collaborate with these masters. And Ossie Davis was there. And I remember when I met him in the theater during a rehearsal, you know, we shook hands. I said, oh, it's such an honor to meet you, sir. And he said, and you are, and I said my name and what I was doing. He said, okay, I will watch your work and let you know in a moment if it is indeed an honor for me to meet you, too. <gasps> oh, wow. And I was like, damn, okay. <laughs> and then he came, he sat in the theater, he saw the choreographer, and he walked all the way to the back of the theater and he said, my dear, it is an honor to make your acquaintance. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was really hilarious. He was, oh. he was mischievous. But um, yeah, so I think that the dance is the thing that brought me into understanding our roles as creative people that we can actually speak in chorus with the grass, with the clouds, with Mm. the trees, with Mm. the people, with the water for, Mm -hmm. you know, in honor of and in chorus with. I never feel like I'm speaking or singing alone. Yes. There's so much collaborative work that you've done sharing the stage with folks, but you also have curated a collaboration that I think is pretty powerful. Borderless Lullabies Mm -hmm. is such a remarkable project. I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about the inspiration behind this initiative and maybe even some of the impact that it's had. Absolutely. The organization that Borderless Lullabies benefits is KIND, Kids in Need of Defense. And it is a pro bono legal defense fund. So lawyers go out and help unaccompanied minors who are sometimes two years old and do not speak English, to defend themselves in court. It's insane that this is needed. Mm. They're all over the world. They're not just in the U.S., but I learned about them through V, formerly known as Eve Ensler. I was at a gathering at her house, and um, she had just come back from El Paso, from the border there. And she told me that she was taken on a tour by the people of kind um, through an abandoned Walmart that was packed with little boys, with children. And there were so many children who had been separated by their families Mm. that they had cots, little cots on the floor. Um, And uh, there were so many children in the Walmart that they had to have names of streets in the aisles. I just kept thinking, what is the opposite of terror? A lullaby. All throughout the centuries, every culture has sung a lullaby to their children. And that the borders are these man-made ideas. So the idea of borderless lullaby. Mm. And so that's what birth did. I went into the studio with my husband, with Chris Bruce, and a beautiful cellist, Dave Egar. And we just started recording a few songs. And then um, I reached out to you, to Martha Redbone, to Toshi, Mm. and then to Jacqueline Woodson, great children's writer. And she's like, yeah, absolutely. I'll read from my book, The Day You Begin. So then Maria Popova offered us to read from one of her beautiful pieces. And then she's like, I'm going to ask my friend to play cello. 
And then the next thing I know, I'm getting an MP3 sent to me from Yo-Yo Ma. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. And then oh. she said, I have another friend who said that, that she has a beautiful lullaby. She said she could send it. It's only two minutes. I was like, cool, whoever. Let, let. Mail Street. Oh, my God. And so far, it's about $30,000 is raised for the Legal Defense Fund. The cool thing is I did through Bandcamp. So it's not available on any iTunes or any Spotify. The money goes directly to the organization. Yeah. And I want to thank you for the gifts that you give to children. I know that you have a recent release uh, called Story of the Sky, which is a children's family album. And I want to know about this idea of making music for children. What motivated you to create music for them? Well, my husband and I were online at a farmer's market in Hudson, New York, and there was a little child in front of us singing, Ring Around the Rosy. And I looked at him, I was like, damn, is that still in rotation? (laughs) And he was like, I believe so. (laughs) And so I thought, you know, we're always talking about how messaging lodges in the psyche and how it develops us when we're young and as we grow, and how it can change us as even when we're older and we read something, it can actually, the messaging can affect our, our consciousness and our psyche and how we move through the world. And I just feel like I have been so focused for so long, really on teenagers and then older people, like grown-ups. And I was like, what about these developing minds? Um, what about a beginning of life narrative? You know, we're getting hip to this idea of an end-of-life narrative. So I was like, what about a beginning-of-life narrative? Mm. And so that's what I was, you know, really interested in doing, is creating a beginning-of-life narrative moral compass project. So the songs, all they address our interbelonging with Mother Earth and with each other. And the songs are in Lingala, from Congo, Tibetan, from Tibet, which, by the way, in both iTunes and Spotify, mm-hmm. you know, I had to upload it all myself, I see that, you know, you have option for languages and Tibetan is not a language that is not offered. Mm. And or Odhom also, because we have Ophelia Rivas who speaks an Odhom language. And so that's that's really frustrating when you get online and you see like these huge languages that are not recognized by the empire. Right. (laughs) As being in existence. And in fact, they are. And a lot of them are threatened with, with erasure because of what's happening in Tibet or what's happening in this country. And so I was interested in getting languages that are sort of not heard as much in this context of collaborative compilation albums. And also they just happen to be friends of mine and people I admire greatly. So there's a song that says, I love you river in 22 languages. In fact, the families that gave me, I love you river in Arabic and in Hebrew, we're both in Palestine and Israel, and I don't know where those families are right now. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of current energy in that album as a call for love and healing and recognition of ourself and each other. There's also a song in Tamil. It's just, it's very beautiful. Toshi has a song. I, I, there's a lot of songs that... Um, you know, we didn't write that we invited friends to offer. Listen to the full episode of this podcast at therhythmofrebellion.com. Thanks for listening. And thank you also to Moses Nagel for editing. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Jacob Boston. Our engineer is also Sina Bazila Hickey. We thank all our volunteers who made today's episode possible. Thanks to Victor Max Valentine, Megan Kelly, Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, Tyana Seeley, and Moses Nagel. We appreciate you listening, and we'll catch you later.